from the WGN Skyline Studio. WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday afternoon, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. and Welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for June the 7th, 2020. Yeah, the first Sunday in June. Welcome to our look at the world of politics and policy as we take you from City Hall to the State House and all the way on to the White House. So everybody be safe, take a break, enjoy the weather, grab a beverage, and we'll get you prepared with what you need to know for the week ahead. Roger, beautiful weekend. Oh, weather is fantastic. Uh, And for the most part, a peaceful weekend. Yes. Um, So, I, I mean, I've been living out on the front porch and that's where we planted the tomato plant and the spices and everything. So you've been keeping an eye on them. Well, the thing was, I, I looked away. What? <laughs> I looked away, and then I hear this noise. Darn squirrel. <laughs> Darn squirrel toppled one of the tomato plants. Oh, no. So. Oh, my gosh. I, I guess I got to put some kind of fencing around it or something. Well, they make right? those. Uh, well, I got the, the wire thing. Yeah, right. But but that's just to tie it up as it grows. Not it doesn't keep the squirrels away. But isn't the one you, you've got the one that's kind of like in a cone shape? Yeah, but it's but, go- so I yeah. Oh, so I have you, to put so some you're, mesh you want, around. You it need some chicken wire around. Yeah, yeah chicken yeah. wire. Okay, as for, we used to call for it. My, yes for my embattled uh, <laughs> tomato plant. Unless you want to put spikes on that uh, cone. No, no, I mean, I, it's, I, and, and the squirrel was cute, you know, but, but it's, it's eating just, your tomato plant. Well, actually, he hadn't gotten to eating it. Oh, okay. He was just digging up the dirt that it just got replanted mm. in. When I was trying to grow garden many, many years ago uh, in an area that was not conducive to growing vegetables, mm-hmm. but just got barely enough sun, the few vegetables that did grow every morning, eaten. Partially eaten, not no. completely. Just a couple of bites from squirrels and whatever else right. came through the, the neighborhood. Just to make them and, worthless. Yeah, right. So hey. we never had anything to, to bring to the table, unfortunately. A lot of fun you'd be at the potluck. <laughs> I know. Jeez. <laughs> great looking vegetables, Roger. Yeah, yeah. Jewel oh, makes some great yeah, vegetables. Yeah, right. Roger's bringing the vegetables. Oh, uh, okay. How come there's a bite out of this tomato? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, somebody had to test it's, it. I got to. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the the tomatoes there. I got the the spices are growing great. The, oh, good. Uh, the basil mm-hmm. is just leaps and bounds. Well, it's going. had so much sunlight so much and warmth rain. and rain yeah and i uh barbecued some chicken and i it didn't even dawn on me to chop some of that fresh basil oh. and put it on the grill on the chicken on the grill mm. so we're gonna I, have to send you back to uh cooking school please yes yes <laughs> but i i have a i have this old weber gas grill oh and, right good it's weber is excellent well i uh i've this is the second time where I changed the burners and the you know the parts. Inside. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of rebuild it basically. Oh, Remember the first time I did it, it took me four hours. Mm-hmm. This time it took me forty minutes. Well, because I now was so you know proud of myself. Yeah. Yes, because I was so afraid I was going to break something before, and uh, the only thing I'd break would be my shoulder, most likely. <laughs> 
uh, because <laughs> you got those parts kind of get welded on from yeah. that heat and stuff like yeah. that. So, yeah, no, it was good. Congratulations. Thing fires up like a charm now. Nice. Is, I'll be over tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> uh, what would you like? Um, oh, a nice turkey burger. Sure. Uh, maybe I a little salmon some, on the I've grill. Got, I, oh, I've got salmon in the freezer. Oh, nice. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, we'll bring the whole family over. Whatever you want. Okay. Sounds good. Well, can we have a gathering yet? Well, I'll be six feet away from you. Well, just don't toss the food to me. <laughs> I'll don't. That's right. We're going to play catch with the Put food. Put it on the table. We'll do, it like, in, we'll it. do it like in Seattle on the pier with throwing They'll the fish. They'll toss you the fish. Yeah, right. <laughs> have you ever seen that? Yes. Well, not in person, but I've seen enough videos of it. Sure. No, sure. I've, I've, I've seen it in person. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it yes. as cool as it is Absolute, on video? Absolutely. It is funny. And... The thing is, and it's, you know, all of this fresh seafood that they have there mm-hmm. uh, on the wharf, and they'll even, you know, they'll box it up, they'll put it in the uh, dry ice and stuff and have it uh, ready for you at the airport. Oh, my. Really? Yes. That's yes. not bad. No. Very sophisticated operation yeah. they have there. And it's right, uh, it's like a, a maybe a block or right across the street from the original Starbucks. I, that's how I know so much about it. Back when I worked at Gloria Jeans, we oh yes, yes. Because when I started Gloria Jeans, that's when Starbucks first came to Chicago. Right, right, and right. Uh, so yeah, so that's how I became very aware of things in Seattle. Oh, I, I think it's a great city. Yeah, I actually do, and I love seafood, so that's just you know perfect. But yeah, we could plank, we could cedar plank That'd some salmon nice for you. I love seafood every time I see it. <laughs> I go food, food. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, the problem with uh, being at home. Is yeah. uh, I need to get out more now that we can. Yeah, well, I'm getting out to the grill more, and that's the <laughs> you that's need to push helpful. it farther away from the back door. Yeah, yeah. There's your exercise, and uh, <laughs> made some great potato salad and mm. everything. And oh, yeah, look at great. you, the galloping gourmet. Well, you know, it's well. Now, do you you like spices? Don't you? Uh, I'm not a spicy person. No, but I'm really but, not. Really, but then, I'm not talking hot spice. No, but, but I'll yeah. I mean, you know, I'll put fennel, um, some fennel. Uh, sure, nothing wrong with a little fennel, a little parsley. Right. You know, I I can do that. Oregano. Yeah, oregano's fine. Basil. Sure. Well, see, you could grow all that. I love all those except words, except for the. Except for the, you can love all those words. <laughs> oh, yeah! Well, you and I are going shopping together you one got of these it, buddy. days. You I got gotta, it. I got to. You're going to have to educate me. Yeah, you're doing fine. Okay. And uh, <laughs> and since we got Roger, just another reason to listen to WGN all the rest of the day is that my good friend Rick Kogan is back tonight. Yeah, and Karen Conti and Karen Conti after mm-hmm. this show. And but Mr. Kogan, you're a guest on, and uh, you'll be uh, you'll be discussing. Uh, Roger will be talking about the book. Yeah, so, it's kind of great. Uh, it'll be nice to be on his uh, premiere return um to the airwaves it'll be uh, great to see him again yes and looking forward to uh, having him quiz me on parts of the book that i've completely <laughs> forgotten about already because <laughs> that's the way rick is that's true as we say in the tribune newsroom there's the good rick and the bad rick <laughs> oops <laughs> he's the good rick okay i'm the bad rick <laughs> 
Well, Roger's here to keep us up to date on all the news. Producer Casera is here to field your phone calls. We're at 312-981-7200. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Sunday Spin. We're on Twitter at symbol Sunday Spin. You can find all of our shows on WGNRadio.com. We're going to take a quick break on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. You're listening to the Sunday Spin on WGN. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred is your phone number. I'm Rick Pearson, and this is your Sunday Spin. Up ahead on the show, after we get an update on the news headlines around 5.30, we'll speak to Eric Kowalczyk. He's the president of Strategic Consulting. He's also a former captain and chief spokesman for the Baltimore Police Department, and his tenure coincided with the uh, Freddie Gray riots in 2015. He's also the author of Politics of Crisis, an insider's perspective to prevent public policy disasters. We'll talk to Eric about these very uh, topical issues involving policing. That's uh, up ahead after in the 530 to 6 segment. Uh, after Roger refreshes the news at 6, we'll speak to State Representative Ann Williams, a Democrat from Chicago's North Side. And we'll talk to her about legislative responses to what we've seen in the aftermath of uh, the George Floyd uh, demonstrations. Uh, we'll talk to her about the uh, legislative response to that. We'll also talk to her about the Clean Energy Jobs Act, which is something where she's chief sponsor, and how uh, the act could mean new employment opportunities in a post-COVID-19 environment. After Roger gives us a final check of the news and sports around 6.30, we'll speak to a good friend of the program, David Yepsen. David is the host of Iowa Press on Iowa PBS. He's former director of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at SIU Carbondale, and he was the longtime national political columnist for the Des Moines Register. And we'll talk to him about issues involving the nation's political environment as we edge closer to uh, November 3rd general election. First, though, time to take our spin through the week in politics. Of course, focus on the continued fallout from the death of George Floyd in police custody in Minneapolis. All four police officers in that horrible video now charged. One was second-degree murder. Protests had continued around the country, though the violence has appeared to dissipate. And while videos have shown attacks on police, other videos have shown police attacking civilians including a 75-year-old man knocked to the ground in Buffalo, New York. Tensions have been high uh, everywhere. In Minneapolis, the Reverend Al Sharpton delivered the eulogy for George Floyd. I want us to not sit here and act like we had a funeral on the schedule. George Floyd should not be among the deceased. He did not die of common health conditions. He died of a common American criminal justice malfunction. He died because of their has not been the corrective behavior that has taught this country that if you commit a crime, it does not matter whether you wear blue jeans or a blue uniform, you must pay for the crime you commit. 
That's the Reverend Al Sharpton at George Floyd's funeral service in Minneapolis. The president has spoken of aggressive use of military force to deal with violent protesters across the country, though he has uh, pulled uh, back the National Guard from Washington, D.C. As the president walked across the White House for a photo op with a Bible in front of a church, that have been set afire. Top members of Trump's cabinet, including Attorney General William Barr, orchestrated a violent dispersal of protesters from Lafayette Square. The photo op created plenty of controversy. Defense Secretary Mike Esper, who joined Trump and had called for dominating protests with force, now says he doesn't support Trump's militarization of combating protests through the Insurrection Act. I've always believed and continue to believe that the National Guard is best suited for performing domestic support to civil authorities in these situations in support of local law enforcement. I say this not only as Secretary of Defense, but also as a former soldier and a former member of the National Guard. The option to use active duty forces in a law enforcement role should only be used as a matter of last resort and only in the most urgent and dire of situations. We are not in one of those situations now. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. That's Defense Secretary Mike Esper. Those kinds of uh, statements apparently now have him in hot water with the commander-in-chief. Warnings, though, from former military leaders of the nation to Trump are astounding. Former Trump Defense Secretary James Mattis said Trump was dividing the nation instead of unifying it. Former Trump Chief of Staff... Major John Kelly agreed with Mattis. And this morning, former Secretary of State Colin Powell, a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Powell went on CNN's State of the Union, said he was voting for Joe Biden. Here's Colin Powell. I'm very happy with what General Allen said and all the other generals, admirals are saying, and diplomats are saying. We have a constitution, and we have to follow the constitution. And the president's drifted away from it. I'm so proud of what these generals and admirals have done and others have done. But you know, I didn't write a letter because I made my point with respect to Trump's performance some four years ago when he was running for office. And when I heard some of the things he was saying, it made it clear that I could not possibly vote for this individual. The first thing that troubled me is the whole birthers movement. And birthers movement had it to do with the fact that the president of the United States, President Obama, was a black man. That was part of it. And then I was deeply troubled by the way in which he was going around insulting everybody, insulting Gold Star Mothers, insulting John McCain, insulting immigrants, and I'm the son of immigrants, insulting anybody who dared to speak against him. And that is dangerous for our democracy, it's dangerous for our country, and I think what we're seeing now, the most massive protest movement I have ever seen in my life, I think this suggests that the country is getting wise to this and we're not going to put up with it anymore. That's former Secretary of State Colin Powell on CNN. Also sounding off from the military community was retired Admiral Mike Mullen. Admiral Mullen is also a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mullen appeared on Fox News Sunday this morning to also criticize the use of the nation's military against its own people. Here's Admiral Mullen. The potential use of our military to fight our own people, to deploy uh, in the streets, and to use a phrase that the Secretary of Defense used, to dominate in the battle space. Uh, We have a military to fight our enemies, not our own people. And our our military should never be be, be called uh, to fight 
our own people as enemies of the state. That's retired Admiral Mike Mullen on um, Fox News Sunday. Also this morning on CBS's Face the Nation, uh, they aired an interview with Attorney General William Barr. And Barr said he doesn't believe that there's systematic racing, racism in policing in this country. Here's the Attorney General. I think there's racism in the United States still, but I don't think that the uh, law enforcement system is systemically racist. I understand the, the distrust, however, of the African-American community, given the history in this country. Uh, I think we have to recognize that for most of our history, our institutions were explicitly racist. Since uh, the 1960s, I think we've been in a phase of reforming our institutions and making sure that they're in sync with our laws and aren't fighting rear guard action to impose inequities that's the attorney general of the united states william barr on friday the president celebrated a dip in unemployment though labor officials acknowledged that their data had problems inquiring good statistics because of the coronavirus it was a rare bit of good news for trump nevertheless counting on a renewed economy to help his re-election bid But as he was speaking about the good economy and hopes for a good economic comeback, he likened a good economy to George Floyd. Equal justice under the law must mean that every American receives equal treatment in every encounter with law enforcement, regardless of race, color, gender or creed. They have to receive fair treatment from Law enforcement, they have to receive it. We all saw what happened last week. We can't let that happen. Hopefully George is looking down right now and saying there's a great thing that's happening for our country. There's a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. This is a great day for everybody. This is a great, great day in terms of equality. That's President Trump. Well, Joe Biden, the former vice president and presumptive Democratic presidential nominee who now has acquired uh, officially enough delegates to win the Democratic nomination, uh, Biden said Trump's comments about Floyd were, in his words, despicable. Here's the former vice president. Toward the end of his remarks, uh, President Trump said he hopes that, quote, George Floyd is looking down and seeing this is a great day for our country. He was speaking of a man who uh, was brutally killed by an act of needless violence and by a larger tide of injustice that has metastasized on this president's watch as he's moved to split us based on race and religion, ethnicity. George Floyd's last words, I can't breathe. I can't breathe have echoed all across this nation and, quite frankly, around the world. For the president to try to put any other words in the mouths of George Floyd, I frankly think is despicable. That's the former vice president of the United States and uh, presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's The Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio, way up overlooking the Chicago River Navy Pier, which is 
slowly going to be coming back into operation soon. Joining me now on the phone is Eric Kowalczyk. Eric is the president of Strategia Consulting. He's also a former captain and spokesman for the Baltimore Police Department. And Eric, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Rick, thank you for having me. And I know we're going to talk about some serious things, but I would be remiss if I didn't say that you're not the only one who has basil that's growing like crazy right now. <laughs> well, it's the hope springs eternal, right? That kind of thing? Yes, sir. Uh, well, we'll have to compare when, one of these days, okay? Um, Happy to do that. <laughs> well, there's no shortage of things to talk about. And I, I think maybe I'd like to almost start out with the most immediate news. And I've seen reports that... Um, Minnesota's uh, Minneapolis City Council, apparently a veto-proof majority of its aldermen, uh, have agreed to defund uh, the Minneapolis Police Department. Now, I'm not sure that anybody really knows in total what that means, but obviously you're seeing uh, protests all over of of demanding defund the police. And it, 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 it ranges from you know, going after budgets that some feel are bloated to uh, basically this dismantling that they're talking about in Minneapolis. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly. This seems like a moving target right now. You know, it's it's hard to speculate about what that's actually going to look like. I mean, just from a logistical standpoint, I mean, how do you have a community without law enforcement? And what does that mean for the residents in the community and public safety, and, and there's a lot of questions in it. What I think it speaks to, though, and what we're seeing in Minneapolis and in cities across the country is this cry for a shift in the way that communities are policed. And so what you're seeing is this very quick uh, response to that need, whether it's thought out uh, entirely remains to be seen. But that that human cry, I mean, you have a hundred cities in the country that are saying, we want to see something different from our police departments. That has to be listened to. That has to be paid attention to. I, I know one of the issues in, in talking about the, the issue of, quote, defunding the police or, or, or reforming how the system works is kind of the problem. And, and certainly we're not unfamiliar with it in Chicago or Cook County is that as we've seen safety net services for people with mental health issues, those kinds of things, that it's fallen onto uh, the police department, the Cook County Sheriff's Department, which is known as the world's largest mental health treatment center. Uh, it's it's fallen on on officers who maybe are you know were never trained into that kind of a maybe social counselor type position. So. I had the phenomenal opportunity to work in 41 different states, literally with hundreds of police departments in the last five years. And every department that I went to expressed frustration with the fact that they were the tip of the spear for all of society's uh, issues, from alcoholism to uh, mental health issues to homelessness, and that the the resounding course of we don't have the equipment, the technology, the training, the preparation to deal with those issues. You hear that in every department that you go to. One of the things that I have been a strong proponent of is shifting the way that police respond to calls for service overall. And 
that shift is from a law enforcement base. If you go into most police departments today and you ask a police officer what their job is, they're going to tell you that it's to enforce the law. And what the shift that I'm advocating for is to one where they say, we want to build healthy neighborhoods. And that means that you have a, a holistic approach. If your only tool to solve an issue, whether it's uh, someone with a mental health crisis or somebody who's facing uh, an alcoholism issue that's led to repeated 911 calls, if your only tool to handle that call for service is an arrest, you're going to arrest your way out of every problem. And that puts us into this position where we are today, where you have communities that feel over-policed, under siege, and are calling uh, from their hearts for a different approach. The concern in Minneapolis is, you know, what, what's your next step? So you defund the police. It's a, it's a response to uh, the anger that you're seeing. How do you maintain public safety? How do you deal with the people that are going to be in a mental health crisis? How do you deal with uh, the issues around your homeless population? And how do you do that holistically? There is a way to go down this path, but it has to be done with thought. It's very, very complicated. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there has to be a plan. And, and I mean, is it, can, can resources be uh, diverted from law enforcement to social services, social service responders? You know, I was talking with a retired chief yesterday about this very issue. And he said that if the social ills that are foisted on police departments were handled by agencies that were designed to handle them, whether it was the mental health crisis or the homelessness, that he could have seen a 30% reduction in his uh, police department and would have been able to effectively work with communities to build relationships, deal with the crime issues, and his organization could have focused on building that safe, healthy neighborhood concept. So one of the the component pieces to a reform in law enforcement has to be both a societal and a governmental realization that police can't be the answer for everything that ills society, or we end up in the position that we're in today. Well, and, and obviously spending in government is a reflection of priorities, and uh, also the reluctance of governmental officials to necessarily want to raise taxes and and try to cut taxes or spend within a, a limited amount of money um, but as i said with the with the way the state's social service safe, safety net has was basically frayed for two years without a state budget i mean there are a lot of and and now let's throw in coronavirus and and yeah. you know and and I, I mean i do think that the the George Floyd uh, death was kind of a, a catalyst for a lot of underlying issues that were the result of of these kind of being stay at home and quarantining orders that we've we've seen. You know the the intensity of the protests was something that I think caught everyone off guard. We certainly in Baltimore saw. A, a very visceral response to the death of Freddie Gray, and we had our riot, and we saw the fires and the violence and the looting and everything that that took place as a consequence of Freddie Gray's death. It, there were protests, in, you know, empathetic protests that did take place at the same time, but not to the scale that this is. And certainly, there 
there has to be some correlation. Uh, again, in the same conversation with the chief, uh, he was saying that he thought that the protests would die down. And I said, you have uh, millions of people that are unemployed right now, and this is an opportunity to feel like they're doing something substantial to make a positive change. It would be uh, phenomenal if local governments across the country could seize on the initiative that's been started here and really start to make those fundamental changes. You know, in listening to the news, the uh, controversy about whether or not there's systemic racism in law enforcement, the frustrating part about that conversation is the, uh, the people who will come out and say that there isn't feel like it's an attack on the officers. And what we're missing is that statistically, we can, we can empirically demonstrate that there is systemic racism in law enforcement. There are really good cops in law enforcement, too, that are stuck in systems that empirically we know have systemic racism built into them. So you've got, to bring it back to your point, you've got millions of people right now that are engaged in the civic process open to having this conversation about what are our priorities as a society? What do we want from our law enforcement? What is having a healthy neighborhood look like? And how do we dismantle systems of systemic racism? We can do that. It's going to take leadership, the elected officials to step forward and start to have those conversations with communities about what budget priorities look like and what they actually want to see in terms of effective services. Eric, I want to follow up on that when we come back. We need to take a quick break. We're speaking with Eric Kowalczyk. He is uh, the uh, president of Strategia Consulting. He is also uh, the author of Politics of Crisis, an insider's prescription to prevent public policy disasters. He is a former captain and director of media relations for the Baltimore Police Department. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. Joining me on the phone is Eric Kowalczyk. He is the president of Strategia Consulting, and he's also the former uh, former captain and director of media relations for the Baltimore Police Department. And we're talking about issues surrounding policing. And, Eric, uh, before the break, you you went right to the heart of the question about the issue of uh, systemic racism in uh, policing. And uh, in police departments. And, and you, you kind of went to a point that I was curious about because earlier today on, on Face the Nation on CBS, uh, the Attorney General William Barr was asked that question about, you know, is there systemic racism in policing? And he gave this answer about how, well, there, there's a racism in the country and that our institutions have uh, reflected that racism, but that he doesn't believe that it exists in law enforcement. And, I mean, to me, law enforcement is an institution, just like all the other institutions. There was the first uh, policing loves studies and trends and what's relevant and university studies. And so the first real study that looked at the culture of law enforcement was done in the 1960s. 
And coming out of that study, there was this realization that there is an us versus them mentality that was prevalent in law enforcement. And 50 years later, that us versus them mentality is still very much alive and well. And it's born out of the day in, day out experience of the average police officer and a lack of direction from leadership and organizations to see the community as a partner. Um, we're, we're taught very early on in the academy about the Peelian method, Sir Robert Peel, and his idea that we are of the community and they are of us. And that gets lost because of the systematic way in which police departments operate. There are racist police officers. There are incredibly good police officers, and they all work in the same system. But empirically, when we look at use of force statistics, when we look at deadly use of force statistics, when we look at sentencing and incarceration rates, car stops and who gets stopped and why and the reasons, there's just data point after data point that reflects the fact that systemically law enforcement uh, treats minorities in a disparate way than it does uh, Caucasian Americans. Those are just hard data points. The inference there is not that every police officer is racist. It's that they work in a system that needs to be dramatically overhauled to deal with the fact that what they're doing on the street every day disenfranchises people in neighborhoods across the country. And who does that overhaul? I mean, where has it begun? There are departments uh, in the country that are doing really phenomenal work in creating a culture inside of an organization built around the idea of a healthy neighborhood that police officers are a component to keeping neighborhoods healthy, but not the solution to keeping neighborhoods healthy. They're not the the tip of the spear for everything. There are departments that are doing that. It's a minority of departments. Change in law enforcement is a generational thing. And so the the need to reform law enforcement is not something that you're going to see in two months or three months. We're talking about 10 to 20 years of work that has to be led by local communities that demand from their police departments the type of service that they want to see. We serve the communities, and we need to reflect the values of those communities that are served. But wasn't that the ultimate goal of community policing strategies? So the problem with a strategy is that every five years or so, and you can go back and I can take you from 1968 through 2014, and every five years, there's a new strategy. Literally, almost to the clock, every five years, there's a new strategic approach to how we're going to do law enforcement. What we're talking about here is not a strategy. We're talking about an overhaul in the mindset of who you bring into your police department, how you train them, what it is that you want them to do on a daily basis, what the goal is for that law enforcement organization. And if the goal is we are going to arrest our way out of every problem, nothing's going to change. We're going to stay right where we are. Because we know that the poorest communities have the highest crime rates, and the poorest communities in urban areas tend to be minorities. So we're going to end up in the exact same position if that's the path that we continue down. Well, what the, we're talking about is a sea change. The, the I mean, uh, the arrest strategy is kind of the default strategy, isn't it? It's, it's unfortunately really, you know, as a police officer, and I experienced this myself in my career, 
you show up on a scene, you have two options. Try to find a way to mediate the dispute so that you don't have to come back because you've got other calls to go to, or make an arrest so that the problem goes away. And when that's the only tool, tools that you provide to your officers, those are the tools they're going to use. I, I was curious about, there is a, um, a, a political candidate here in Illinois who's a, a, a former law enforcement official and was tweeting out today, and I want to get your thought, uh, it's easy to watch a Dash body cam video and play armchair quarterback, but unless you're in that moment and realize that even with our training and experience, we're still human with emotions and capable of making mistakes, you'll never truly understand. So a little while ago, I told you about the us versus them mentality that exists in law enforcement. And that's a phrase that I hear all the time repeated by police officers. And there is validity to it. Uh, Until you like chasing somebody down the street, wearing 40 pounds of equipment, climbing over a fence, the adrenaline, the emotions that go with that until you do it, Uh, And not knowing that when you go over that fence, if you're going to be facing somebody pointing a gun at you or not, uh, you you won't understand what that experience feels like. That doesn't take away from the obligation of police departments to, one, train officers to be reflective of community standards so that when you do go over that fence, your default response isn't to beat the person that's there. And two, when we make mistakes, we are human. We will make mistakes. It's incumbent upon law enforcement to publicly talk about this was a training issue. Here's how we're rectifying it. Or this officer acted so far outside of the scope of what we consider to be tolerable that we're terminating them and we're charging them. And we have to be upfront with that as a, as a law enforcement profession because that's how you, you start to build community trust is with the accountability piece. And that's missing in a lot of organizations today. Part of that is we need to change in some laws in certain states that stop departments from doing that. We were in Baltimore. I wasn't allowed to say if we fired somebody and we fired a lot of police. I was never allowed to talk about it because of what the laws look like. So when I talk about this we need elected officials to really step forward and start leading these conversations. It's because we're going to have to change some laws. We're going to have to change some funding priorities in order to shift the way that communities and police departments work together. Yeah, and in that statement that I read, and I'm obviously, you know, I'm not and never have been in a law enforcement officer's shoes. And uh, granted, I, I understand that, but it's not a matter of, I don't think, Monday morning quarterbacking here. And, yeah, when mistakes are made, uh, people do make mistakes. But when it's somebody in law enforcement that has a firearm, uh, and it seems like the standard for those mistakes needs to be, you know, you, you need you need to be much better recognizing what a mistake can be. You know, for a long time, the the general thought around that was giving the benefit of the doubt to the police officer because you don't know when you might be in that situation, and so you don't want to judge somebody's split-second decision-making, and then you're faced with the same situation. That's a mentality that has to change. There are 
lots of gray areas when it comes to interactions and use of force situations. But at the end of the day, that police officer has to be held responsible for the decision of the type of force that they use, how they respond to a situation, and they have to be held publicly accountable. Both good when we have officers that do the right thing, they should be held accountable publicly and and the, the community should know. Uh, that they have good officers who are doing uncelebrated things every single day. And when an officer is is in the wrong, the departments need to come forward and say this officer was wrong. We, we have to get to that place if we want to have any degree of credibility. Eric, I'd like your thoughts. There's a story on uh, public radio here in Chicago, WBEZ, with uh, Attorney General Kwame Raoul uh, talking about the concept of uh, basically licensing police officers. You know, that's uh, it's an interesting idea. I'm not going to speculate about what that would look like because every state, there are so many different employment laws and union issues and everything that goes into that. I am, however, a huge proponent of increasing the amount of training. Um, there was a, an article that I was reading this morning. The average police officer in the United States receives between uh, 16 and 26 weeks of academy time and then maybe an additional 12 or 14 weeks of field training. There are countries around the world that have a one- to two-year training academy for their police officers. That That's a, a, a fundamental change in the professional engagement that you get from your department when you invest that much in training on the front end. Um, and, and that's definitely something that should be looked at as well. Well, and certainly with certification, but I mean, in most professions have continuing education as a component. And I mean, I, I think that might be part of this as well. In, in just the uh, brief time we've got left, after you've seen everything that's been going on for these days and, and uh, the continued energy behind these protests, do you think we're truly at an inflection point where there will be change? You know, I hope so. Uh, when I wrote my book two years ago, it was uh, in the title, trying to prevent this exact thing from happening, hoping that police departments would step up and start making the changes that were necessary. I truly, uh, I'm a, the eternal optimist, and I have to hope that this is the moment that we really start to make some fundamental shifts to move forward. Uh, Eric, uh the name of the book, again, is Politics of Crisis, an insider's prescription to prevent public policy disasters. Uh, where can they get the copy of the book? Uh, anywhere they get their ebooks, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, um, uh, Kindle, uh, audiobooks, wherever you, get, wherever you get your books. Spoken like an author. Eric, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. It was very helpful for our conversation this afternoon. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Good Sunday evening. Welcome to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. We've seen pictures throughout the country of various officials taking a knee with protesters over George Floyd's death. That included the police chief in Minneapolis. In a stunning announcement, Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the National Football League, issued an apology. It was the league and team owners that quashed the career of Colin Kaepernick for taking a knee during the national anthem. Here's Roger Goodell's apology. We, the National Football League, condemn racism 
in the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the National Football League, believe black lives matter. I personally protest with you and want to be part of the much-needed change in this country. Without black players, there would be no National Football League. And the protests around the country are emblematic of the centuries of silence, inequality, and oppression of black players, coaches, fans, and staff. We are listening. I am listening. And I will be reaching out to players who have raised their voices and others on how we can improve and go forward for a better and more united NFL family. That's Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the National Football League. Uh, No real word yet on whether that apology has reached Colin Kaepernick. We're going to bring things now locally, and we're going to speak to Democratic State Representative Ann Williams from Chicago's North Side. Uh, the representative is the sponsor of the Clean Energy Jobs Act, which was uh, one of, I think, one of the major pieces of legislation that kind of was left hanging because of the abbreviated uh, session dealing with uh, a response to uh, coronavirus and coming up with a budget. Representative, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. Uh, before we, we get to the uh, Clean Energy Jobs Act, uh, I want to talk to you about we've seen um, increased calls from uh, some of your colleagues in the General Assembly uh, wanting to consider reconvening uh, and, and I guess maybe seizing while the issue is hot and have a kind of a special session to take an overall look at uh, policing in the state of Illinois and the issues of uh, police and race. Uh, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, I've been talking with members of the Illinois uh, Legislative Black Caucus over the past several days, as have many of my colleagues. We're really looking to the Black Caucus for guidance and direction as to what steps we need to take next um, to deal with the situation, to address broader racial inequities. And and I think that remains to be seen exactly how uh, we'll uh, approach it. I'm going to see kind of what the consensus is from my colleagues, but I'm definitely open to doing whatever we need to do to address not just the uh, immediate issues dealing with criminal justice reform, but, um, you know, some of the other very, very compelling issues that uh, have really disenfranchised um, many of the communities in Illinois, um, particularly communities of color. Well, and it it seems like um, maybe if there's a plan, there's a reason to meet, and and the plan is the everything is a discussion now, and and everything is kind of fluid. Absolutely, the Black Caucus is going around the state, um, hosting conversations. They were in Rockford this week. Some of us went to stand in support. Um, they'll be in Peoria. They were in the city of Chicago the other day. So they're really out there uh, talking to communities, hearing from. Um, you know, constituents as to what 
the best way to proceed is. And I think a plan is in the works and, and conversations are happening. And I think that's the appropriate response at this time to this very, very critical issue that so many people are concerned about. Well, and you, you as you said, there, there's the larger issue, too, of just kind of that economic inequality in those neighborhoods uh, that, you know, I mean, look at all the work that went into the uh, the Cannabis Act of, of trying to do some kind of restorative justice there through opportunity. Uh, but then the pandemic kind of hits and, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of takes away all of that effort. And who knows what's left after a rebuild of, of that. And then, of course, you have all of these uh, businesses in impoverished neighborhoods that were, uh, subjected to looting and arson and a question about whether those buildings are going to come back. And, and there's plenty of calls for some kind of community investment uh, initiatives to be able to help those business, small business owners uh, rebuild and get back on their feet. You're exactly right. I mean, we're really talking about decades of chronic disinvestment in these communities. Um, it, the issue has just been amplified and uh, illuminated um, with the COVID crisis, and now uh, it's even heightened. So I think all these need to be considered and looked at uh, in, in tandem. It really is foundational what we're dealing with, and, and there's a number of issues that need to be taken care of. And I'm confident that we're going to be making some forward progress um, and continue the work that many of my colleagues in the Black Caucus have already started with regard to criminal justice reform, et cetera. But we really look, I need to look at the communities and determine you know, where can we provide renewal and um, restoration? And that's where the Clean Energy Jobs Act come in, comes in. <laughs> We're going to get there. We're going to get there. But just <laughs> just, 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 one more thing. And, and we're, we're, we're on this topic, I mean, we're seeing uh, calls from uh, more, a lot of progressive, some progressives uh, saying, you know, defund the police. And we've got the Minneapolis, apparently the city council in Minneapolis, uh, a veto-proof majority saying that they're going to basically uh, kind of deprogram the police, uh, whatever that means. But it seems like, you know, maybe there is a, a kind of examination that needs to be made about referring some resources maybe that go to police and having them transferred over to social services that deal with mental health and addiction and those kind of problems, which, as we've seen in the crumbling of the safety net in this state, uh, it's fallen on first responders who were not trained to deal with these kinds of problems and, you know, not good outcomes happen. I think you're right on. Clearly, we need to take a, a hard look at how we're using our resources for law enforcement and if they're being uh, used in the, the best way possible for the communities most in need. It certainly seems like there's some dysfunction that needs to be addressed um, as an understatement. I actually just returned from a very peaceful gathering in uh, Wells Park this afternoon in support of Black Lives Matter. It was organized by Indivisible Lincoln Square um, and then came home to get on the show and the the gathering kind of marched down Lincoln Avenue right through my district. So I I saw a lot of that message today, and it's clear that people want to have a conversation, but they also want action. Yeah, I think think the conversations, we know what the conversation is. Uh, And, and yeah, we do need conversation to come together, I guess, to figure out what a a plan might be. Uh, But 
conversation, you know, that's it's such a sometimes an empty phrase. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I, I really think that there's just a, a change in kind of um, uh, the intensity and uh, the urgency of the, the dialogue that's happening now, which is really positive and good to see. Um, again, my Black Caucus colleagues have uh, been working nonstop, um, talking to community members, being out in the community, reaching out to their colleagues in the GA, um, just to start to get support, even if we don't have a proposal all prepared now, just to start getting support uh, for the broader issues, to address the systemic inequities, to talk about um, what we can do in criminal justice reform. As, as a starting point, it was important to many of us to say we stand with you. We are uh, in support of your community and uh, waiting to hear from you as to next steps and how we can help. We're speaking with State Representative Ann Williams, a Democrat from Chicago's North Side. She is the sponsor of the Clean Energy Jobs Act, and we're going to talk about that and what it could mean in a post-COVID-19 economic environment. That's coming up, but first, time for a quick break. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. 312-981-7200 is our phone number. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And I'm joined on the phone by Democratic State Representative Ann Williams. She is the sponsor of the Clean Energy Jobs Act. All right, Representative Williams, we're going to talk about the Clean Energy Jobs Act. Um, but first of all, uh, let's let's kind of lay out here what what is this legislation well the, the bill basically has four main pillars the first is to reach for a carbon free power sector by 2030 um, the next is to uh, eventually get to 100% renewable energy and our target date is 2050 we're looking to electrify illinois transportation sector so mass transit, fleet vehicles, et cetera. And then the thread kind of throughout uh, the initiative is to promote jobs and equity and economic opportunity, especially in communities of color and those that have been adversely impacted by pollution. So it's an expansive, it's an expansive bill. It is. And, and, um, but it, it's one where, you know, there seemed to be a significant momentum going into this year because people have kind of hashed through a number of the issues and there seemed to be momentum to act. And then, of course, we had uh, the pandemic and that basically shut down much of the legislature's agenda this year. Uh, But uh, when it comes to helping uh, communities uh, that have suffered from economic inequality, how does this bill do that? Well, regardless of what we're striving to do in the bill, whether it's um, creating a development of renewable energy sources, wind and solar, or whether we're um, looking at um, transferring uh, a fleet, for example, to electric vehicles or mass transit, everything we're doing while keeping equity and economic opportunity in mind. So that means that communities that are losing jobs, and this even goes to downstate, cold communities, for example, Communities where jobs are being lost, where opportunities have been lost, where they've uh, suffered under pollution, we have returning citizens. We're hoping to um, create the development there in the communities where there is the most need. And that's something that we 
heard from communities around the state when we went uh, when we went around asking people what do they want to see as we move forward with energy um, in Illinois. How do we if we're starting from scratch? You know, we would build it differently. We're not exactly starting from scratch, but we are entering a new chapter in terms of energy procurement in Illinois, and we want to do it right. And that means we want it to be clean. And we want it to create jobs, and we want it to do so in a way that provides equity for all of our residents. So when we see sometimes uh, on, on political opponents talking about climate change, those kinds of things, and they point to you know, the fanciful, fancifulness of a, of a Green New Deal, what's your response in, 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 in pitching this program? Well, I'd look back a couple of years to uh, the legislation we passed in 2016, right. the Future Energy Jobs Act, FEJA, always with the acronym. <laughs> but that, that actually was a real job creator. And um, we, were, we got up to, I think, third in the nation in terms of solar jobs um, and development of new solar jobs under FEJA. But the programs ran out, the funding ran out, and here we are um, really in a place where if we don't take action, we're going to lose a lot of opportunities for investment. Companies want to invest in Illinois. Renewable companies want to locate here. There's an opportunity to move forward in a way that we uh, only contemplated a few years ago with FEJA. But we have to put the infrastructure in place to make that happen. And that's what we're striving to do here with the Clean Energy Jobs Act. So who pays for that infrastructure? Well, what we're doing in CJA is contemplating a change in how we uh, procure capacity. So you know how um, you pay for power, but you also pay for capacity, which means you pay for the amount of uh, energy that you need on the very hottest or the very coldest day. That traditionally runs through an auction. Uh, PJM is the auction. And uh, unfortunately, under uh, the Trump administration, not surprisingly, um, we are bailing out and paying for energy we don't need that is uh, procured by dirty fossil fuel plants. We are paying for energy we don't need. We're paying for dirty energy. We're proposing to have Illinois do its own capacity markets through the Illinois Power Agency. And that would enable us to prioritize the resources that we want to prioritize, renewables, wind, and solar, and not have to rely on dirty coal. You have talked in the past about, in regards to this bill, about how um, Illinois residents are, are facing what could be just an unprecedented increase in electricity bills due to uh, a regulatory decision by the Trump administration. Could you explain what, what that is, what, what you mean by that? Yes, there is a, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has FERC. been There's in the process. F- FERC, you're, FERC. You, you like acronyms? FERC. Yes, FERC. I know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, FERC. So the FERC rule um, is in the process of being implemented, and that would um, provide preferential treatment to um, not just uh, the cheapest energy sources, but energy sources really are favored that are the fossil fuels, and that is by design. And you can opt out. And we would like to see Illinois opt out of that capacity market, again, being able to prioritize the uh, sources that we want to prioritize. And you referenced the, um, the increase in costs. That was a big driver in terms of urgency for CJA um, over the past six months. But there's uh, an additional issue now that we're dealing with COVID and the economic crisis that came along with it. And that's, you know, the fact that we are going to need 
um, opportunities to restore and reinvest in our communities. And we think that CJA will provide exactly those sorts of opportunities and is a really great vehicle for uh, us to recover from COVID-19. We didn't anticipate that that's what we would be looking at. Nobody really did. But um, I think we're going to be seeing um, a new sense of urgency and I hope a new sense of momentum to move forward with CJA. So obviously, though, in, in the kind of conditions we're looking at, this would be a fall or veto session type thing if we if we have that this year. Probably will be um, that. But I, again, I, I'd like to see it. And I think I'd like to see it sooner than later. There, the urgency of, uh, you know, the increased cost concern based on the FERC order that you referenced, um, the need for immediate um, uh economic investments sooner than later. Those are all very urgent items. But I think another piece that we haven't got into yet today is the health of the planet and its relationship with the health of the population. We were uh, seeing it already play out, the effects of climate change, both with historic lake levels in Illinois, uh, Lake Michigan, the historic uh, unprecedented wildfires in Australia. We're already seeing um, the dire uh, consequences of climate change. Um, science is, uh, you know, really t- giving us a warning. Science warned us about the pandemic, and we didn't listen. Science is warning us now about the uh, damage and devastation that climate change will cause uh, to our planet. We need to start heeding those warning- warnings. You know, we there's no more time to wait around. And I think if we learn nothing from this, you know, it's that you know, we really need to, to focus on listening to the scientists, listening to the data, um, and taking action based on that. So what is the what is the sticking point here in in advancing this legislation? It's a it's a very expansive piece of legislation and it's comprehensive and that's important. I think when you look at energy bills in Springfield, uh, generally they uh, involve a lot of stakeholders, a lot of varied interests. But I think uh, when it comes to moving forward now, there is a new urgency, and there's a lot of demand by um, residents of Illinois and, you know, those that are active on these issues and those that are just concerned about the future of our economy and of our planet that we need to take action um, on this now, and we need to move forward with the clean energy. Um, I think this current crisis, uh, both with COVID and then the, um, the obviously the unrest that we're dealing with. And those, those really kind of um, stir up a lot of um, concerns in people as to what we're looking at, what will our future hold. That's why this is such a, an opportune time to move forward with a big bill like this. So the obstacles in the past probably, it's a complicated issue. you got to get everybody on board. Everyone's got a perspective. But I think people will start to come together and focus on, you know, really what our priorities are. And making that happen is going to be work. But, you know, if we agree on the shared goal of moving forward in a clean, uh, green way in terms of energy, I think we can get there. I think, uh, Representative, we've all been doing a lot of introspection in these uh, last few months and particularly in these last few days. Democratic State Representative Ann Williams from Chicago's North Side, sponsor of the Clean Energy Jobs Act. Uh, Representative, thank you very much for joining me this evening. Thanks so much for having me. This is the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome back to the Sunday Spin. Uh, Earlier in the show, I mentioned the case in Buffalo, New York, where police there 
shoved a 75-year-old man to the ground and left left him bleeding from the ear. The two officers involved have been charged with assault. Uh, their 57 colleagues who were they're all part of a special tactical squad and well they resigned from that squad in protest and applauded the two after their court appearance here's new york governor andrew cuomo after he had seen first seen video of the incident i was sick to my stomach sick to my stomach it was the same feeling i've had for 90 of the past nights when I would get the death total from coronavirus. I would physically get sick to my stomach. And when I saw the video, I got sick to my stomach. Not to be overly graphic, uh, but that is the answer to your question. Uh, I think Mayor Brown was 100% right in suspending the police officers last, last night. I think he acted quickly and appropriately, and I applaud that. Uh, The firing is then a contractual collective bargaining question, right? Uh, How do you go from suspension to firing by that contract and that process? Uh, But I would say I think the uh, city should pursue firing, and I think the district attorney should uh, look at the situation for possible criminal charges. That's New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Well, joining me now on the phone is David Yepsen. David, a great friend of the program. He's host of Iowa Press on Iowa Public Broadcasting. He's the former director of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at SIU Carbondale and former national political correspondent for the Des Moines Register. David, thank you so much for joining me this evening. It's good to be with you, Rick. Thank you. Well, it, it was actually, uh, this was kind of an outgrowth of a conversation that David and I had uh, earlier, or, or last week, actually, for uh, a story I wrote about uh, Governor Pritzker and his uh, taking on Donald Trump in a uh, closed conversation of uh, the nation's governors with the White House. But um, I, I think we're seeing two things going on now is that uh the protests are still going on um and and i think they're going to continue the violent looting uh part that was hitched on to these peaceful protests seems to have ebbed um but i still think you know i think this country is kind of at a very serious inflection point I agree, Rick. I think uh, in all kinds of ways, there's all kinds of evidence that people are are looking for a change. You have the size of these protests. You have even many uh, police officers uh, expressing consternation at, at some of these things we're seeing in the uh, in the streets. Protesters have sort of taken back their movement from uh, people, the opportunists who are looting and uh, really cheapening uh, the protest. Um, I so yeah, I think I think things are changing, and in the world you and I work in, which is uh, covering politics, um, we just had a primary in this state um, on June second. It was a record turnout, the largest turnout we have ever had in a primary. Uh, so people are engaged in a way that they haven't been. Uh, new generations of leaders are coming forward, um, and uh, things they are changing now. 
Uh, it's a, a long way to election day, uh, but uh, I, I think there's some some fundamental changes. We're a lot of Americans, uh, particularly white Americans, have who thought you know we had checked the racial racial box when when we elected Barack Obama president. Uh, are finding a rude awakening that no things are not uh, uh, what we thought they were. So I, I do. I think things they are a changing. Well, and and I I think quite frankly, and I I, I don't mean to harp on that case in Buffalo of that seventy five year old white protester, but I think you know that almost in some respects you know fueled that there is some issues that need to be addressed about police uh police tactics uh and then you had president trump basically wanting to militarize uh the response to protests by calling in not just the national guard but the the armed services and the insurrection act uh, now, at least, we've seen that the president today uh, is basically sending the National Guard out of out of Washington. But I think that you know, it, it just seemed to be this compounding of things on top of the, the pandemic restrictions that so many of the country had been under. And I think uh, that the president's performance on some of these issues is really hurting him politically. Uh, you have American military leaders and retirees who are vocally uh, disagreeing with him, uh, saying they're they're not going to support him or going to vote for um, Joe Biden. Um, you have um, it, it, you have polling that shows his uh, Biden up with a double digit lead nationally in uh, in polling. Now you and I both know that national polls are one thing. You right. t- you know tell me what the polls are in Wisconsin and, and <laughs> Pennsylvania and Michigan, and then we can we can talk. But I but things have moved, and and uh, you know a lot of military people who originally thought to be uh, strong, good conservative Republicans, you know they're not happy with the way uh, Trump is is handling this, and so it's it's a long way to uh, election day, but. Um, c- clearly, the, the president is having some trouble uh, hand dealing with this situation. Well, I thought the the military, the response of, of these retired military leaders was really astounding. Particularly when you're talking, you know, you're thinking about somebody like Jim Mattis, who was uh, Mad Dog, Secretary of Defense, and who who had for the most part kept his uh, silence in in refusing as he sold his book not wanting to really engage and direct uh, when asked questions about his view of the White House. And I thought that was astounding when he said, you know, this is presidents unite, this man is a divider. You you, you throw on Colin Powell, and of course, there's you knew that uh, you know, Powell was not going to be a, a Trump fan of any kind and, and kind of acknowledged as much uh, four years ago in the election, but all of these other, uh, you know, Rear Admiral Mullen, former former Chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, to me, that says an awful lot about wanting to put a break on where the military fits into a political environment. Yes, it does, and it's it's telling military people, particularly at those top levels of command, even. In- are usually very careful not to get involved uh, in, in blatantly partisan 
campaigns. They take very seriously the, the separation uh, that we have in this country. And there's a debate now over whether uh, uh, that has was done properly uh, in Trump's photo op in, in front of the church uh, uh, a few days ago. So, you know, we're having a little discussion about the role of the military. And, you know, there are some military people who, uh, Trump, you know, let's remember, uh, Trump did not serve. And, um, you know, he, he acts like he, um, maybe, it, it, how do I say this? He, he's just acting too macho for somebody who wasn't able to go to Vietnam because he had bone spurs and real soldiers, uh, soldiers who um, have defended this country for careers. Uh, are just uh, fed up with this, and it sort of boils over when you see those kind of comments coming from respected uh, retired military people. We're speaking with David Yepsen. He's the host of Iowa Press on Iowa Public Broadcasting. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. on this Sunday evening. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. This is your Sunday Spin. Joining me on the phone, my good friend David Yepsen, former national political correspondent of the Des Moines Register, who is now the host of the venerable Iowa Press on Iowa Public Broadcasting. Uh, David, we've got a call from our friend Ron. Ron, welcome to the Sunday Spin. Hello, Rick. Um, David, my, my question, with, with a lot of the recent discussions of racial um, e- e- equality, and because um, Joe Biden did say he was going to choose a female vice president, is it more pressure on him now, because the African-American community are uh, really looking for him to choose an African-American female? So that's my question. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ron. Yes, Ron, you're right, and I agree. He said he needs to pick a woman. I think it needs to be an African-American. Um, and for just the reasons that you said, Ron, uh, black voters have been pretty loyal to the Democratic Party uh, for many years. Um, their turnout wasn't that great in uh, 2016, and it uh, contributed to Hillary Clinton's loss. Uh, now, Democrats can't and shouldn't take it for granted anymore. It's a, it's a changing vote, it's a changing world, and, and politicians have to, uh, you know, Democrats particularly have to rethink a little bit about how they approach uh, African Americans. Um, you know, and, and this is one thing that Biden can do. Uh, and so you've got Kamala Harris, for example, is at the at the list. Val Demings, a congresswoman from uh, Florida, uh, is another uh, that are that are mentioned. But you know, it has to go beyond that, Ron. I I think um, uh, Democrats, as I say, they, the African Americans have been loyal voters, and many of them are are feeling that the, the the Democrats have not delivered on their promises particularly on issues of income inequality. We don't talk about that enough, uh, but it is a big deal in this conversation that we're having. And so the times are changing. Uh, Younger voters uh, are having some doubts about uh, voting. Um, They're saying, we're told to go turn out and vote, but nothing happens, nothing changes. Um, They had 38% turnout of voters under age 30 uh, in the 2018 elections. Voters over age 65 was double that. So younger voters 
uh, were staying home too. And so if, if Joe Biden is, uh, he can't just rely on Trump's mistakes. He he has to um, get people fired up to be for him, particularly, as you said, Ron, in the African-American community, and I think also among younger voters under age 30. David, I mean, obviously we don't have any data to tell us this, but given kind of the intensity of protests, the, the, the protests, the aftermath of George Floyd, and even seeing protests in you know, uh, demonstrations in places that are small towns or, you know, even uh, there were uh, some out in uh, conservative West suburban Wheaton. Um, is there a intensity value here? I, I, I kind of wonder if it wasn't for COVID-19, if this wouldn't be one huge voter registration effort. Uh, it, it, it was, but thanks to absentee ballots, you know, people can still um, go to the polls and turn out as they did here in in, in this state. Uh, no question about it, Rick. Um, it's it, it just it's different. You have Mitt Romney participating in a, a demonstration outside the White House. Um, Alex Burns from the New York Times had a tweet today. He said, "I never thought I would have seen the day when Mayor Bill De Blasio was defending the New York City Police Department, yeah. and Mitt Romney is protesting in the streets." You know, and we're seeing right. a lot of things uh, that we didn't see before. And part of it's generational, Rick. Uh, you know, we, we go back to the Southern strategy and it looks like Trump's replaying what Nixon did in 68. We, we're two generations removed from that. And um, so you're seeing many people who are saying Republicans and independents and who are saying this something isn't right here in this country. We've got to make some changes. And as you say, that that Southern strategy, you know, we're we're talking uh, over fifty years, and yeah, and what's what's look at the country these days? Yeah, I mean, those Southern states, many of them are in toss-up uh, situations. Georgia, Texas is moving uh, blue, uh, and um, many the old southern strategy was based on race baiting and all that that stuff doesn't work and it's going to be important uh for both candidates i think to rethink the strategies going into this because you know the old rules are are just not um they're not working like they they used to we've got look how the technology has changed this debate we're having this debate because of the iphone we're capturing things that we never see we'd heard about but had never seen before and that has changed um, our attitudes towards this racial problem that we have in this country. We're seeing it up close. And technology is changing the way politicians campaign. Um, and and so, on, you know, Facebook and direct messaging, uh, things we never uh, have seen before in campaigns. So it's a, it's a new game. It's a fascinating time to be uh, covering politics and watching it. But one thing's for sure, you know, <laughs> November is a long way away. That's exactly right. Um, I did so when you talked about the the Iowa primary. Not to be confused with the caucus, please. Right. We don't want to go there. Uh, but um, what what was your view for why was such such a significant turnout? Um, it, it was a partly the effect of the caucuses. You had a huge mobilization effort in the Democratic Party. Uh, there was a, a U.S. Senate primary in the Democratic Party. But here's another example of change. Long-term Congressman Steve King, controversial Republican from uh, northwestern Iowa, 
he was thrown out in a primary, uh, lost by 10 points. Uh, and, it, you know, what was happening just across the state line in Minneapolis from his district, I think, played a role in many rank-and-file stalwart Iowa Republicans uh, saying, hey, Steve, those old lines and, and rhetoric just doesn't work. We need a congressman who can be more effective. So that's another example of the change that I'm seeing. Well, and I, but I thought it was interesting, too. This wasn't King getting taken out in a general election by a Democrat. And northwestern Iowa, of course, is strongly Republican, strongly conservative. But the fact that, you know, everybody knew Steve King and knew what he represented and he had been able to last for so long until, I mean, basically, even even the Republican uh, caucus in Washington stripped him of, of any uh, committee powers. And uh, that, I think, was probably the final straw that did him in. Yeah, it was with a lot of Republicans. You know, you can be a conservative without coming off like a racist or a white supremacist. Uh, and so he's he's gone. And. You know, these are these are pretty conservative people. That his replacement is most likely going to be a conservative, but he's not good. He's not going to come with the, the baggage and, and some of the rhetoric that Steve King um, uh, peddled. Uh, that is in Iowa that I know, and uh, it, it it was uh, uh, really uh, again a, uh, a marker of how much voters are changing their attitudes towards things into politicians. One of the uh, in, on one of the Sunday shows, and I, I can't I can't remember exactly. It might have been Admiral Mullen who who said this. I I, I don't want to be wrong, so I'm not sure. But was talking but was talking about how presidents have to uh, represent everybody and not just their base. And this, I mean, this seems to be. The, the president's game right now is 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 the base it's not about growing a base yes both parties do that they fire up their base uh republicans have um, reacted to the growth in the democratic base with a variety of efforts to it's the critics call it turnout suppression republicans believe they're trying to foster election security uh but you win an election today by firing your base and seeing that your your opposition is discouraged from uh, from turning out, and, and what they, what you're just talking about here is we have to go back to the old days when a Republican ran as a conservative in the in the primary, and a Democrat ran in the primary, and then for the general election they dove to the center and tried to become more centrist. Uh, instead, uh, you know, they they win their primaries by appealing to the base, and then they just keep going mm-hmm. and trying to find, you know, in the Civil War, it was called waving the bloody shirt uh, and finding ways to, to energize and, and radicalize and mobilize their base. And I think that has to change. And maybe that is. Um, when, when you see Mitt Romney protesting like that, um, you know, that's, uh, that's a diff- something's changed. Yeah, uh, and um, I know you know we've started seeing that phrase again. Speaking of Nixon, the silent majority, and th- th- here again, that that's that's different. That was that was well, then. That was then. It it uh, it, it certainly we saw it in, in twenty sixteen. It may still be there, Rick. Yeah, I think Trump's support gets understated in some of these polls. 
Um, there's a phenomenon called the shy Trump voter. It's not real cool to be for Trump. And so you get a phone call from a pollster uh, and you're a Trump voter. Um, you know, you, well, I don't know. You, your response is, um, is muted. Uh, so uh, Nixon called it the silent majority. Um, there may be some uh, still a, a shy Trump uh, electorate out there uh, that, they might be unhappy with Trump now. And rural America is being trashed by trade wars and, and hard economic times. That was going on even before uh, the racial turmoil flared up. And so I think a lot of Trump's voters, people who were for him in 2016, uh, are, are rethinking it now, uh, particularly white women, white non-evangelical women who voted for Trump. They're definitely a, a target of opportunity for, um, uh, for Democrats. But does his kind of law and order pitch appeal to those suburban women uh, who are more moderate and may have may have fallen uh, towards the Democratic column in recent years? Yes, yes, it should. Though we know those voters are very concerned about security, uh, but security is more than just having more cops on the street. Now that we're seeing uh, security in terms of our health. Uh, in, in terms of our our political dialogue, the country sort of looks at, it could come in unglued, and, and so I think those things motivate uh, all voters, but it, and certainly uh, suburban women voters. Which it, 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 you're correct is very critical uh, in determining the outcome of uh, of this president. They will be very critical in determining the outcome of this presidential election. David Yepsen, host of the Iowa Press on Iowa Public Broadcasting. David, as always, thank you so much for joining me and hope to see you sometime soon. Okay, great talking to you, Rick. Well, that's our Sunday spin for this evening. I want to thank my guests, Eric Kowalczyk, President of Strategia Consulting, State Representative Ann Williams on the Clean Energy Jobs Act, and David Yepsen, host of Iowa Press on IPB, Iowa Public Broadcasting. Up ahead next, Karen Conti is back to join the show as we uh, celebrate a return to normal Sundays here on WGN. You've been listening to The Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson.